You are listening to the official podcast of Oceans Church, a place to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference with Pastor Mark Francie. I'm a little bit worried about the younger generation, I'll be honest, uh, because they're living in an era of information. Can we all agree? Technology. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember uh, pencils, pens, and America's greatest sport ever given to recesses. Come on, tetherball. We live in a different era. It was a different era. We didn't have text messaging and Twitter and uh, YouTube, YouTwit face. Come on, Facebook. Uh, we, we didn't have these social mediums. We didn't have all these ways to kind of avoid conflict, to be able to post things, throw it out there cowardly into the grand, uh, grand wide openings of society. When I was growing up, if you, uh, if you actually want to interact with someone, you had a couple choices. You could physically walk to someone's house. Physically. You didn't text them. And if you wanted to call them, you called a landline. Hello, somebody. Some you have no idea. It's like, look, it's right over your head. Landline. And there was a day that we didn't even have answering machines. Who remembers these days? I remember, that, I remember an era in time that if you called somebody, if you didn't have an answering machine, it would ring until you didn't want it to ring anymore. If you wanted to get a hold of someone bad enough, you'd just stay on the phone for hours. You could wait until Jesus returned. Come on. It was a different era. We didn't have answering machines. We didn't have text messages. How, remember, how many remember Nokia phones? Little brick phones. They had, like, they had their own language pager. You could actually text letters with numbers. It was like an elf code from Lord of the Rings. Come on. And uh, it was a different era. I remember growing up in a different era. And uh, specifically, I remember in school growing up, that if you actually begin to uh, acquire feelings for somebody, it wasn't like it is today. I think that technology is doing the younger generation a a great disservice. Because when I was growing up, you had three or four options if you liked somebody. And uh, the first option was terrifying. It was to go to them and tell them that you liked them. Can we all agree this is a scary option? Okay, you're pretty, you know, I like you. And you get there and you're like, "Uh, I like pretty doesn't come out right, you get nervous, you start hyperventilating. It's crazy that when I was growing up, you had a couple, you had, you had face-to-face, if you wanted to let someone know your affections and your intentions and your desires to acquire more knowledge and information about that individual. So you could go personally, face-to-face, or number two, the second option you would have is you could actually, uh, you could call. You could call. Again, this is a landline. Many times, uh, and even this day and age, it was more difficult because you had to go through the screening of the family. Hello. Because when you called someone's house, anyone in that house could answer the phone. You weren't getting who you were looking for usually the first time. You're talking to mom first, dad first, brother first. So you could call, and again, if, if they didn't have an answering machine and they weren't home, you weren't getting a hold of them. And then finally, the third option, which was a pretty safe, uh, safe option, is you could phone a friend, and you could send a friend in your stead. And you could say, Joey, go let her know. Let her know. Talk me up. Tell her I own a Bowflex. Come on. And you'd send a friend in, but that was kind of the cowardly approach, and, uh, and that really left us back before text messaging and for direct messages and, and, and messenger and all these, these other avenues. Back in the day, uh, if you were in school and you had feelings for someone, someone over the age of 25 is going to know what I'm talking about, is, is there was uh, things called notes. We would write love notes. 
Some of you are married because of a love note. Come on. Who remembers love notes? You get your pen, your pencil. Women have the best, like, bubble handwriting. Men have hieroglyphics. It's funny, you, you'd write these love notes, and you would basically, you put down your emotional state, your feelings, what you thought about this individual. You start loving someone, some of the sappiest garbage you didn't know that was in you would start to come out of you. And I'll never forget, you would write this love note, and then you would fold it in some sort of origami. It's like it's a love note, but it's also a bird, you know? <laughs> you'd fold it up, you'd pass it across the classroom. And the person that you're intent in their eyes witnessing those notes would begin to read the, read the letter, and they would reciprocate, and they would write a love note back to you. Love notes were basically ideas that you would you'd be able to get across the way that you, you felt about somebody. You could express feelings and, and express interest and really tell them how you feel, the author's thoughts, intents, opinions, and affections, their heart. That's what the note translated. And uh, that's what it conveyed. And I actually believe this, that uh, I remember writing, you know, like notes to Rochelle and, and, and when we first started liking each other, and I would drop them off in her office, and I'd be like, why do you love me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's a whole movie. I'm from Idaho, guys. Uh, and uh, someone knows, it's a movie, guys. Uh, tough crowd. Um, but I remember writing this, these, these notes down, but I, I, I love this because I, I love John 8. It's, it's the only sermon that Jesus ever wrote. Everything else we have about Jesus was actually verbalized, and whether it was Dr. Luke or Mark or Matthew or, or, or uh, John, they heard what Jesus said, and they wrote it down. But I love John chapter 8 because John tells us a story about a woman who was caught doing one of the worst things you could do, especially in that day and age, and brings her into the church meeting. Now, this is a, it's, it's a normal church service until the moment this lady walks into it. And you got a crowd of guys uh, that are hostile. They got rocks in their hands. They bring this woman in, and it goes from a normal church service that Jesus is teaching them to all of a sudden, this is the most awkward service in history. She's half dressed. They start screaming at Jesus, saying, This woman deserves to die. This woman is, is a sinner. She's screwed up. She's flawed. She's, she does everything that we're not supposed to do as law abiding Jews. And they bring her in the midst, they throw her in front of Jesus, and it's really, it's a scary situation, because if Jesus doesn't, um, if Jesus tries to forgive her directly, would just say, don't worry about it, guys, now they could accuse Jesus of violating the law of Moses. There's 613 laws, we know 10 commandments, but there's actually 613 commands that they would say, you're, you're violating the law if you say, forgive her. And if he said, kill her, then uh, John chapter 1, it says that Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. Now we don't have a God that's full of grace. We just have a God that's full of truth. And I want you to know this today, as I'm just kind of laying this out, that I believe that God, listen to me, is a God of grace, but he's also a God of truth. I want you to know that when the body of Christ or the church is full of grace without truth, it's like having medicine bottles with no medicine in them. But if you, take, if you take truth out of grace, it's like or all you have is truth and you don't have grace. It's like surgery without anesthesia. we got to have both. Are you following me? I want you to know that there's this, the message I'm preaching to you is a message of grace, but it's also a message of truth. And so Jesus says, all right, you, this lady's obviously messed up. And I love it because we're going back to our love notes. Is he stoops down ignores their accusations like some of you ignored your little brother or sister growing up. 
and begins to write in the ground. Now, scholars have a couple different theories of what Jesus was doing, actually, when he was writing in the ground. Some say that maybe he was writing out the names of the accusers and laying out some of their shortcomings. Can you imagine holding rocks, thinking you're going to accuse and, and, and punish somebody else for their mistakes? And all of a sudden, not just your pastor, but God it stoops down, writes your name out, Mark Francie. And you're like, oh, that's weird. He knows my name. And you got rocks in your hands, you're ready to throw, adrenaline's pumping. And all of a sudden, Jesus goes, Mark Francie. And then he starts writing down, I know what you did last summer. You know, like he's like, <laughs> he starts writing out, starts writing out maybe things you said, things you did, low moments. Well, how many are grateful that usually there's not cameras recording, paparazzi recording the lowest moments of your stupidity? I don't know about you, man. I'm grateful that, that, that there's not like little bubbles over our heads that, that are showing the world the, the, the dumb things that you've thought about, the dumb things that you've acted out in your life. Come on, are you grateful, somebody? And it says that he stooped down, he begins to write in the ground, and maybe he wrote out the people's mistakes, their shortcomings. Other school of thought is maybe he, he began to write out how much he cared for this woman. Now, I know that there's some great authors and some great writers and great screenplay uh, uh, authors and writers, but I want you to know that Jesus, he's God. So I'm going to guess, I'm going on a limb here, but I'm going to say he's a pretty poetic writer. And potentially, he started writing out how much he cared, how much he valued, and how much he loved this woman that made a mistake. And we don't know, honestly, this is the truth, we won't know until we get to heaven what he wrote in the sand that day. But what we can all agree on today is that whatever Jesus wrote saved her life. Can we agree on that? Whatever Jesus wrote that day in John chapter 8 in that service with that messed up woman, whatever he wrote about that woman saved her life. Can I just get a good amen? We find here that he says, he says, neither do I condemn you. Or before he says that, he says, he who is without sin, throw the first, throw the first stone. And I love this because he disarms the accusation without dishonoring the law, but he actually came to fulfill the law, fulfill the prophets. And so it goes on, he says this, he, he stoops down, he gets up, no one's there, and he says, neither do I condemn you. And I want you to see this. This is the personification in John that, that John writes about Jesus. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. He says, neither do I condemn you. Someone say Grace. How many know that when you deserve to be punished and you're not, that's the favor of God? That's the mercy of God. And I want you to know that we all have one thing in common, whether you live in Orange County or Boise, Idaho, that everyone in this room has done something stupid at some point in your life. Can I get an honest amen? Do an altar call for lying in a second. Come on. I want you to, we've all made mistakes in our life, had low moments, and I love this because Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. I'm not throwing any rocks at you. Truth is, he's the only person in the room that could have judged her. And I love this because maybe he wrote down in the sand that day that one day he'd be treated in a way that she deserved so that in this moment she could be treated the way that he was deserved to be treated. And I want you to know this is what Christianity is. Some of you think that you owe God something for what you did. And I want you to know that whatever you owed God, Jesus paid on the cross. He says, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. What does he say next? Go and sin no more. That's truth. And I want you to know that, that grace without truth is like a half 
It's like, it's like a chair missing a leg. It's, it's not going to sustain you. We need grace, but we also need truth. Can I get a good amen? He says, neither do I condemn you. And I want you to know this again. Whatever he wrote that day was some sort of love note that preserved the life of a woman that didn't deserve to go on living. And I'm, and I'm of the conviction today that the Bible is not just some random grouping of ancient literature, but I actually believe that it is the love notes of God himself. Many people think it's outdated. That book's out of dates, out of sorts. It's just, we can cut and paste what we like, what we don't like. I want you to know that at Ocean's Church, we believe that God's favorite way to speak to us is through this book. We believe that it's true then, and it's also true now, that what he writes has the power to save us still today. I believe if God took the time to stoop down and write, if he took the time to be a writer, I believe one of the greatest things we can do as Jesus followers is take the time to be readers. And I think that one of the greatest travesties is, is many, many of us in this room, we have a heart for God, a love for God, but we have no idea what he's written down about us. This is God's autobiography. There's 31,102 verses in this book. There's 1,189 chapters. If you read three chapters and three and a quarter chapters a day, you would read through the Bible in 12 months. If you read six and a half chapters a day, you'd read through the Bible two times a year. If you read 13 chapters a day, you'd read through it, uh, you'd read through it. (laughs) (laughs) Mathematics never never saved anybody. You'd read through it every quarter. You would read through it four times a year. If you read, if you read 30, uh, 39 chapters a day, you would read through the Bible in 30 days. Once every 12 months. And I want you to know, imagine this just for a second. Imagine if you're Bill Gates, and I like to think of myself as Bill Gates, but look like Brad Pitt. Come on. If we're going to dream, let's dream big. Imagine if you're very affluent, you're very wealthy. Imagine you have a child. But somewhere along the way, in the early days of the child's life, you get separated from your child. And let's just say hypothetically that your child grows up maybe in an orphanage, maybe grows up in foster care system, maybe, maybe goes through a hard, difficult life. And imagine this just for a moment, that life serves your child such a bad hand that they actually end up living on the streets out of high school. And they're living destitute, broken, and poor. I want you just for a minute to imagine that, that your child, you're the richest, one of the best-looking people in the world, and your child is living broken, busted, and disgusted, homeless on the streets. I want you to know, listen real quick, that how many know that if you, if you belong, that child is your child, you have an inheritance. And I actually believe that it would break my heart as a father if my two daughters didn't know, we all know this, that you have a living will. Many of us have wills. And, the, and will is basically, what would happen to my kids if, God forbid, something happened to my wife and I? What the will does is it dictates what, what is mine that will go to what is theirs. That what I, I own will be divvied up to the kids that belong to me. Many times people ask me, they say, Pastor, how do you know what the will of God is? How do you know what the will of God is? Truth is that when I pass away, we're going to give away all that we own. We don't take anything with us. And we're going to give away everything in our will to our children, our grandkids, all that, Right? The Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. How do you divvy up inheritances through a will? What is a will? It is a written document of the desires of the owner. And I want you to know that many people say, Mark, what is the will of God for my life? But it's so simple. It is what the written documents are of the owner of all of your inheritance. 
And I believe that many people don't realize that this book is not just some random collection of, of writings in literature. It is a written living will. And it lets us know as the children of God what belongs to us because of Jesus. We believe 2,000 years ago that God treated Jesus the way that we deserved. So that 2,000 years later, he could treat us the way that Jesus deserved to be treated. I want you to know, last night there was a famous fight on TV. Some of you watched this fight. You know what I think about when I watch great fighters? Is I think about this. How crazy would it be to be married? We actually have a UFC fighter at our church. But to be married to a fighter. If you're Conor McGregor's wife or some, some famous fighter's wife, you know what's interesting? Is if you're married to a famous fighter, they will go in the ring, they will take the punches, the blows, they'll bleed, they'll sweat, and they'll put their body through trauma. And if you're married to them, you know what the crazy thing is? At the end of the night, you didn't do any of the fighting, you didn't do any of the bleeding, you didn't do any of the, you didn't do any of the damage to your physical body, but you reap the rewards of your spouse because you're connected to them in a covenant. And I want you to, this is the idea of Christianity, that God literally took on the blows that we deserved. And the moment we put our faith in him, we begin to receive the inheritance of God goes, I wanted to treat Jesus this way, but he had to pay for your stupidity. And because he paid for all of our mistakes, you know what we do? Is we get the privilege of reaping the benefits of the God that was a champion of the ring. Come on, somebody. This is who God is. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The Bible is a sequence. It's, it's, a, it's a, 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 a book full of, of letters and literature. Like I said, there's, many don't know, but there's 66 books in the Bible. 66. There's over 40 authors. It was written in multiple cultures in three languages. And many people just think it was, it's an accident. It's an accidental. It's a contradictory book. This book is really the foundation of all that we stand on. This book is supernatural, the way that God put it together. It's amazing that some stories are long in the Bible, some stories are short. There's all forms of literature. There's, there's proverbial, there's hymns, there's historical, there's biography, there's poetry, there's sayings, there's letters, laws, parables, prophecies, there's dramas, and there's adventures. And the best part about the Bible is, is they're all nonfiction. I love the fact that this book was literally written, and, and it's, it's, it's amazing to me because it re reveals the mind of God and the condition of men. You start reading the love notes of God, you re realize, man, this is the mind of God, and this is the condition of men. I've heard one person say that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And all of us, as we read this book, you know what happens is this book begins to read us. <clears throat> Hebrews says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts between soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and it has the power, this is crazy, to discern the thoughts and the intents of our heart. This book is living and powerful, the Bible says, and it goes on, it says that it shows us the way of salvation and destiny to those of us that believe. It teaches us the map. It's, it's literally the Bible, these love notes, it's the traveler's map, it's the pilgrim's staff, it's the bird's wings. It's, it's the dreamer's dream. It's, it's the soldier's, uh, you know, weapon. It's, this book is, is the only book that has the power to open up heaven's gates and actually show us that as children of God, we have a living will that actually closes the gates of hell behind us. This book has power that no other book has. I've read other literature. This is crazy. This, there's millions of miracles that have happened all over the world by people that believe in this book. And these love notes, it's always up to date on every subject. It's crazy. It's never out of date, never out of touch, never out of style. 
It's God's mighty word. It's amazing that you apply the Bible to any area of your life and watch how these love notes have the power to change your predicament. Apply the truth of the Bible to your, to your uh, stewardship, to your budgets, and watch how you get out of debt. Apply the Bible to fidelity and marriage and watch how you have a happier home. Apply the Bible to principles of forgiveness and watch how you live a more peace-filled life. It's amazing that any area of, this, of your life that you apply God's love notes, it'll begin to transform the landscape of that area. It's amazing to me that people say, well, Mark, it's, it's just, some, look, it's just some, some old dead book. I don't have to defend this book. One man said that you don't have to defend the Bible. It's like a lion. You just let it out of its cage. It'll take care of itself. Some people think it's just a boring book, Mark. It's not a boring book. This book's composition is unbelievable. You read the first 10 words of Genesis, and it's one of the most profound. People have been studying it for decades, centuries. The continuum between time, space, and matter. Really, really smart people let us know that you can't have time without space, and you can't have space without matter. And that's why it says, in the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. God solves the human continuum from the very onslaught of Genesis chapter 1. You go on to read about the durability of the Bible. No other book in history has been more persecuted, more, more, more banned. People have tried to destroy this book. Look at the composition. 40 authors written over six, 16 centuries with one general theme. No human being could do this. It was written by shepherds, scholars, uh, soldiers, fishermen, tax collectors, and kings. It was written in prisons, palaces, in tents. It was started in lonely Arabia, and it was finished on the lonely island of Patmos. This book is the only book that when you read it, it has the power to read where you're at and actually begin to speak hope, truth, and life to where you're going. I love this book. It's love notes. It's, its durability is unbelievable. Some people say, Mark, if God's real, wouldn't there be evidence? Look, give me, let me give you some evidence. It is, the most, it is the most published book in history. It's been translated into over 1,200 languages by an army of translators. It's been the number one best-selling book since the printing press. It was the first book ever translated. It's the best-selling book every year, so much so that New York Times no longer puts it on the list because it far exceeds any other literature on the earth. It's been literally, it's been, it's been published throughout history, top seller. Again, all these things. Dictators have banned it from courtrooms, classrooms, outlawed it by governments. But God's word continues to stand the same. It's amazing that there's, there's a prophetic edge to the Bible. This is crazy. Like, this is boring. If you're bored right now, you're a boring person. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Do you know that there was 300 prophecies about the life of Jesus before he was even born? Written down 400 years, 500 years before he came to the earth. Can I ask you a question? What would you think about a book that was written in 1800 that forecast the Great Depression, that forecasted uh, Nazi Germany, JFK assassination, Martin Luther King assassination, the Twin Towers, and a Great Recession in the early 2000s? What would you think about a book that was written hundreds of years before that would outlay what would happen in the days to come? Would you have confidence in that book? Would you have faith in that book? This is a prophetic book with prophetic literature. And, and it literally, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that people say, Mark, well, it's just, it's just another religious book. I want you to this book that was not written. I want you to write this down if you can. The Bible was not written to tell you what's wrong with you. There's a lot of angry preachers that are like, man, they just tell me what's wrong with me. They beat me over the head with the Bible. I want you to know that I'm a believer today. 
not because a preacher told me how bad I am. I'm a believer today because someone got up from this book and told me how good I can be because of Jesus. They told me how good God is. And good news has to say good news. And many people say, Mark, it's just another religious book. I'm telling you, it's not. People, it's just crazy how we're so smart, we're so educated, but we tolerate illogic in society today when it pertains to Christianity. People say things like this, all religions lead to the same place. Really? Why is it we don't tolerate that logic anywhere else in life? Do all cabs go to L.A.? Do all ships go to Sydney? Do all flights go to Miami? Do all trains go to Europe? We don't tolerate this illogic. Different destinations lead to different destinations. A wise man once said, if you don't stop where you're going, you're going to end up where you're headed. You can chew on that later. It's amazing to me because all roads don't lead to L.A. And it's funny, some people say, Mark, churches look the same on the outside. Well, I want you to know that taxis do too. But just because taxis look the same, they take people to different places. If I could give you like a, a maybe a 60-second breakdown of some world religions, Judaism denies the New Testament, sees salvation as a judgment day decision based upon your morality. They say the Messiah will come one day to restore peace to Jerusalem. Hindus anticipate multiple reincarnations in the, in the soul's journey. And through the cosmos, they believe in many gods. All of them are impersonal. Buddhism actually grades your life according to the four noble pillars of the, full, of the eightfold path. Nirvana and heaven is yours after multiple reincarnations. Muslims earn their way to Allah by performing the duties of the five pillars of faith. They say that Jesus was not crucified. They deny the Trinity and raise Muhammad above any other prophet. Jesus, you see, he blazes a one-of-a-kind trail that no other religious figure in history has ever done. He doesn't come for the strong. He comes for the weak. We don't get to him become by completion of a deed, but more so a confession of a need. He's the only one that voids a, a path uncluttered through self-salvation. We don't earn our way to him. He loved his way to us. Are you following me? And many people just, well, I got to be a better person. Good people don't go to heaven. They don't. Forgiven people go to heaven. And I'll tell you this, well, how could a loving God send people to hell? He does not send anyone to hell. Can we just get that out of the, out of the question? By the way, if we're saying that, can we just say it this way? Who would want to deny a loving God? God doesn't send anybody to hell. He just honors people's faith, their decisions. And I want you to know that he is a good God. He's radically in love with Orange County. He's radically in love with you. And the fact that you're sitting in this room today hearing a message like this proves to me that God must really love you. Come on. I want you to know that God will meet you where you're at, but he loves you too much for you to stay where you're at. Is he mad at me, Mark? Am I the right type of person to, be, to receive forgiveness? Yes, you are. Because this woman didn't deserve, she deserved a death sentence. But God, who is rich in mercy, with an outstretched hand and a mighty, mighty arm, reached down to her and gave her what she did not deserve. As Stacy comes up here, I want, I want to share a few thoughts with you. I believe, I believe that the Bible is unlike any book because it says in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 4, that if you'll read this book, that it'll actually give you wisdom. It says that the Bible has the power to, give this, to make the simple-minded clever. I want you to know, I didn't go to school. I don't have some crazy PhD. Well, I went to school, but I don't have some crazy, it's a little too much excitement over there for me. I, want, I, I, I wasn't the smartest kid in my class. I wasn't even the best looking. I was close. Come on. I'm a preacher. I gotta tell the truth. And the most humble. Um, <laughs> 
But I want you to know that as I begin to read this book, I found myself in my, my mid-20s leading the marketplace business ministry at our church. And there was guys that had been making millions of dollars longer than I've been alive asking me for advice, asking me for wisdom. Why would an older gentleman go to a young guy in his 20s that wears his wife's jeans? Come on. Why would, why would they do that? Could I suggest to you, because this book, unlike any other book, will give wisdom to the simple. Some people say, why would you read the Bible? Because it'll give you wisdom. Number two, why would you read the Bible? Joshua chapter one says that if you meditate on it day and night, that you will know good success. You'll know good success. I'll tell you right now that if you don't have time to read the Bible, you don't have time to be successful. I want you to know Abraham Lincoln said, if I had, if I had six hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend four hours sharpening my ax. And I believe many people don't realize that a dull ax requires way more effort and way more work. If, as a community, as Ocean's Church, if we can collectively honor God by spending time in this book, I'm telling you that you'll go further, faster, because God will bless the work of your hands. He'll bless your, bar- your business, your, your marriage. He'll take care of your children. He'll, he'll push your career forward. If you don't have time to spend time in this book, I'm telling you, you're, you're, you're doing yourself a huge disservice because this is a book that has the power to actually bless your life. Can I get a good amen? It says in, in not only Joshua 1, 8 that it give you success, it says in Psalms 107, verse 20, it says that it has the power to heal us. Do you know why you go to church and you always feel better when you leave? Hopefully. Put a little clause in there for myself. It's because, because David wrote that he sends his word and he heals us. And he actually, he actually delivers us from all of the destruction. I want you to know, some of you feel good in church, not because I'm a great speaker, because we have phenomenal musicians. I want you to know, you feel good in this atmosphere because his word has the power to heal you where you're hurting. It says that he sends his word and he heals us. Not only do these love notes have the power to cause you to be wise, cause you to become successful, it also has the power to heal you. And fourthly, there's a promise that's laid out in Psalms 119, 105. He says that this, these love notes, if you'll spend time in them, they'll be a lamp unto your feet, and they'll be a light unto your path. Do you know why I love reading the Bible? Because I get direction. You know what some of you need today? You need direction. And I'll tell you right now, if you'll just spend some time I love the fact that David says, it's like a lamp into your feet. Back in those days, uh, Jewish, uh, the outfits they would wear, uh, they would actually have little lanterns on their gowns. And when they'd walk at night, rabbis, they'd have these little lanterns on their, on their outfits. And as they walked, these little lights would light up where their feet stepped. And I believe that that's what the Bible does. As you begin to open it up and say, God, would you speak to me? I'm listening. I want you to know, can I just tell you one secret about reading the Bible? You get way more out of it. I should say, you get all everything out of it when you believe in it. You believe in it. I know atheists that could quote more scriptures than me, but they don't get anything out of it because they don't read it with belief. See, the Bible is like a can of paint. The power is in the application. And as you begin to apply it to your life, it begins to change the settings and the walls and the way that things look on the interior life that you're living out. You see, it has the power to heal you. It has the power to prosper you. It has the power, literally, to actually uh, cause you to be successful and wise. It'll direct your life, and it has the power, it says, and it goes on to say that it has the power to revive me. Psalms 119 says, revive me, O Lord, according to your word. You know why I sing with passion? I clap sometimes off beat. Shout sometimes when we're singing. 
I don't shout because I'm a good singer, I'm a good, good musician. I shout because I remember where God found me. I sing with passion because I remember who I was before God came into my life. I was lost and I was without hope in the world. I couldn't drink enough, smoke enough, sleep. I couldn't hook up with enough people. There was, literally, there was a vacuum inside of me that God himself filled. And that's why when I begin to sing to him, I just begin to remind myself where you found me, God. And when you do that, you know what it'll do? It'll revive you. Some of you have never sung with passion because you've never been revived according to his word. God is the only one that has the power to bring you back to life. I never died, Mark. It's because you've never lived spiritually. But when you realize that there is a, a life spiritually, just like there is a life naturally, and the spiritual life begins when you start to believe in him. What will happen is there's moments of your life that you lose faith. You get busy. You get distracted. You know what happens? Your faith becomes sour and stale. But you know what you do when you open up the Bible? You say, God, would you speak to me? And as you pray that bold prayer, you know what God does? He gets the defibrillator out. And he begins to actually shock you through the power of his written word. And I believe that God will revive all of us according to his word. At Ocean's Church, we're committed to being a Jesus-honoring, Bible-teaching church. Because this book has power. And let me say this. When you begin to read the book, you begin to pray. And when you begin to read and pray, I want you to know, I want to warn you that you're on the verge, you're the precipice of a, of a great spiritual awakening in your family. If you'll begin to pray and read this book, God will begin to show his love to everyone that you care about. You'll start infecting, like, like the flu or having a cold, every environment that you could begin to go into. People will say, why are you having a good day when we're having a bad day? Why are you, why are you faith-filled when business is bad? Why do you have a smile on your face when, when we're going through opposition? Because when you read your Bible, you're going to talk to God. And listen to me, when you pray, you never bring requests to someone that has less authority than you have. When I pray, I remind myself who's in charge. When I sing, I'm reminding myself who's in control of my life. And many times what we do is we go to God and we tell him how big our problems are. But I got good news for you. You go to God and tell God how big he is and tell your problems how small they are. We get it backwards so many times. God, look how big my problems are. Instead of going to God and saying, hey God, look at those small problems. I want you to know that God is way bigger than anything you're facing in your life right now. Some of you then hear that you don't like God. He's not your problem. He's your solution. He'll revive you according to his word. And finally, I'll close here is I believe the power of God is revealed through the Word of God. He'll reveal, He'll reveal Himself. I believe that this woman learned more about Jesus by what He wrote that day than maybe she ever learned in church. Because when you, when you, when you get a, in a, into a contact, in a context with Jesus, and He begins to tell you how much He cares about you, that you're fearfully and you're wonderfully made, that you're not an accident, Maybe your mom and dad told you you were an accident. You're not an accident. You might have surprised mom and dad. You didn't surprise God. You're fearfully and you're wonderfully made. Some of you don't like your parents. You're like, God's a father. I don't like fathers. My father's, my father's an idiot. I want you to know that you came through your parents, but you came from God. And I want you to know that he is a perfect father. He loves you. It says in Jeremiah that God knows the plans that he has towards you. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and to give you a hope. Many people are living far beyond the grade and the level that Jesus died to give us. Going back to my story, how bad would it be if my Kenzie and my Chloe were living on the street destitute 
when their mom and dad were blessed, favored, and prosperous. I want you to know, nothing breaks the heart of God more than his kids not knowing that they're his kids. And that's why Orange County, someone wrote us and said, why another church in Orange County? Why would you leave booming Boise? And I said, well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, God told us to. It's a good one. I said, but secondly, I said, there's more people in 20 minutes of my house than there is the entire state that I was living in. And there's more people that don't know Jesus in 20 minutes of my house than population I would find within, within an eight-hour drive. So the need is greater in Orange County. And we happily come here because there's too many people living on the street spiritually that actually belong to the royal family. And I want to, come on, if you're going to give him a hand clap, give him a good hand clap today. I'm finished. I think the greatest thing that we can do is invite our friends and family to atmospheres like this that they can experience the same love, hope, and joy that we're receiving today. Would you stand to your feet with me? Close your eyes. You guys have been awesome. Thanks for listening to the Oceans Church Podcast. For more information about Oceans Church, including gathering times, locations, and how you can give and support the community, check us out at www.theoceanschurch.com.